Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. I will do my best to finish on time, which means we're going to go through these other three doctrine, little statements of the Lord very quickly. Let's finish up number three, though. Was Jesus moved by the Pharisees' lying flattery? No, not at all. He called them hypocrites. Doctrine number three, who raised up Caesar? God did. Jesus is king over Caesar. Amen. Doctrine number three, should Christians pay taxes to pagans like Caesar? Yes. Who should Christians obey in any conflict between Caesar and God? God. We ask rebels for paper money to show they are hypocrites, for the FRNs that they are and the paganism that they display. So it's we ask rebels for paper money, for the Federal Reserve notes they carry, FRNs, and for paganism. Matthew chapter 22 at verse 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. And amen. Okay, here come the Sadducees. The Sadducees have heard that Jesus handled the Pharisees right well, so now they want their crack at him. Bad thinking. Jesus has handled the Pharisees right well, and they, he was going to handle them right well. Before we leave Caesar, let me add two little points. And there's pages that I just flipped over if anybody was watching uh, that I didn't cover about Caesar. It's been covered before and it's not worth our time because we already understand the rule and it's been taught before. But let me mention two things. One, these rebels will use a word that they don't understand called principle. And they will say things like, I voted for Chuck Baldwin for principle. Well, really, 
do you, why didn't you vote for yourself? Why didn't you write yourself in on the ballot if you believe so strongly in principle? Because your vote for Chuck Baldwin was absolutely and totally in every measure, by every count, worthless. Except one. You helped elect a Democrat by voting for Chuck Baldwin and taking away even one-seventh of one percent of the vote from the Republican. Paul didn't say when he was on trial for his life or when he was about to be scourged, men, you know the principal in this matter would let me go. He appealed to Caesar and his Roman citizenship because it was pragmatic, because it was practical, because it was prudent. There's a better word than principle. It's called prudence. Right. And it foresees the evil and hides yourself. We have a two-party system. And when someone like Ross Perot runs and steals 10 to 20% of the vote away from the Republican, if you as a Republican vote for Ross Perot because you like short little Texans, then you helped elect a Democrat. It is so simple. We vote prudence. That's why Paul said, now I could pray right now and say, I appeal to Christ, but he did something prudent. He appealed to Caesar. And that's where I rest my case. And I rest my case, I appeal to Caesar. And is it lawful for you to scourge a man, a Roman citizen uncondemned? You know, and they dropped the scourge immediately because he was appealing to something very well understood. And it was really a principle of Roman law that he recognized by prudence. Prudence is better. The Bible uses prudence throughout. And Paul's a great example of it. I, I, no more time on that point. The second point I want to make is, did God give parents children to help them be better parents? No, it never crossed his mind. Did God give employees to help employers be better employers? Not to do work that employers don't do, but I mean to be better managers, to be better users of their capital. Did God give employees to make employers better? No. Did God give citizens to make rulers better? Never crossed his mind. That isn't our role. Do you know who they answer to? They don't answer to us. They answer to God. Right. God... God raises up and puts down rulers all the time. He's done it for 6,000 years. He's raised up bad ones. He's raised up good ones. He's put good ones down. He's put bad ones down in order to properly execute his providence on nations. Americans are rebels by nature. And because, because a man is a husband, he doesn't, he doesn't take the side of wives very often to pick on husbands. Because he's a father, he doesn't very often take the side of rebellious children against fathers. Because he's an employer, he really doesn't like unions. So he sides with the employer. But because he's not in politics, or because he's not a civil ruler, he thinks they're fair game, and that he has a right to criticize them. And I've said all these things so many times, if a man has a right to criticize government. And you know, the Bible says we can't even curse them in our thoughts. Right, right. 
And listen, we just endured 16 years of one named President William Jefferson Clinton. I'm trying to remember his full name. Forgive me. And President Barack Hussein Obama, 16 years. We did fine in America. Right. You want to go look at those 16 years? They were okay. We've got to guard against it. One way to guard against it that I have found to be very useful is when someone is criticizing government or they're asking, can't I criticize government this way? I like to, re to turn it on the authority that is under them. Do you want your wife getting with other women and criticizing you? Because she should, she could, if she wanted to. Do you want her doing that to you that you're doing to the government? Or do you want your children getting with other children and running you down as a bad, terrible father the way you are the government? And so by taking the attack on civil government and just shifting it to one of the other spheres of authority, it helps us, no, I wouldn't want that. No, I would I want my wife thinking I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well then, why don't you treat our government that way? Because it is. We have the greatest government in the world. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. They don't require a 501c3. Do you know what? You're filling out your tax return. Maybe you're using TurboTax or something, and you type in 10000 for your charitable contributions, 10000 it, it just reduces your income by 10000 If your marginal tax rate for state and, government, state and Fed is 30%, then the government just contributed 3000 to you. To, to your church, to your charity. They don't, they don't come knocking at your door. They don't ask you to prove it. They don't ask you to provide anything. They just want you, in case of an audit down the road, to have the ones that were $250 or more noted. Amazing. An honor system. Just, just put it in there. Put 20 in, if you paid 20. We, we have a wonderful country. And we get to vote again in a two-party system, which just makes it so simple. Black and white. In more ways than one. Black and white. You know, it's a shade of black, it's a shade of white that we have to choose. But it's simple. And when you say that you're voting principle, it's just a wasted vote. Why didn't you write yourself in? Uh, or write, write someone else in the church in. Let's make it a matter of prudence. And let's keep praying. So instead of principle, let's practice prudence and praying. Matthew 22. What we have now are Sadducees that smell blood in the water. But the blood is their blood, you know, instead of Jesus' blood. They, they saw the Pharisees put... Listen, if you were Pharaoh and there were ten plagues, would you be afraid of the Red Sea? Not when God blinds you. And God blinded these Jews so that they saw Jesus put down the Pharisees, but instead of backing off and saying, let's leave them alone, they jump in. And they bring up this wild story that I'm sure they'd used before that poor Pharisees had gone, I don't know. A man that had seven wives and then she died? We've got eight funerals in a row? I don't know who she's going to be married to in heaven. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus never did this. Right. Unless he had an itch. <laughs> he didn't have to think.
He just answered, and his answer is brilliant for us. His answer is brilliant. The Sadducees were Jewish liberals. The Pharisees were the most conservative sect of the Jews' religion. The Bible tells us that the Sadducees were liberals that denied there were such a thing as angels. How could you do that with a Bible? They denied there were angels. They denied that the human being had a spirit that existed after he died, and they denied the resurrection of dead bodies. The Bible tells us those three things about the Sadducees. Now, what the Bible doesn't make clear about the Sadducees is they loved the written scriptures. And what you're going to say to me is, that's impossible. How can you love scripture and not believe there's angels? They spiritualize them away. Just like preterists spiritualize away the second coming of Jesus Christ and all the attendant events with the second coming of Jesus Christ. See, the Pharisees were followers of oral tradition. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, It hath been said by them of old time. It hath been said by them of old time. But I say unto you, he was correcting the Pharisees' oral tradition of the rabbis. The Sadducees held to Scripture. So Jesus takes them apart with Scripture. And if you didn't know that little fact, you would not appreciate him going to the law because of the books of the Old Testament they loved the most, it was the five books of Moses. And so Jesus takes the Sadducees to the books of Moses about the resurrection. There was a lot of material in the outline. That's all I have to say. So let's just look at the verse. I'm not going to look at my outline. Turn it over. It's punishing me. Um, it's wonderful material here. You can see the story in verses 24 down through 27. And so they ask the Lord Jesus in verse 28, who's she going to be married to in heaven? Now Jesus answers and says, ye do err. You know, and some people say that's not good pulpit manner to tell people, you're wrong. Well, that's how Jesus worked. Amen. You're wrong. Ye do err. Not knowing, you don't know the Bible. Now, now remember, these people knew the Bible. You know, Pharisees wore it. They wore it on a flag tree. They wore it on a they wore it on a strip of cloth around their arm that had a box on it with Bible verses in it, and they wore one right here. And that's how they showed their love of Scripture. The Sadducees claimed the words, but they denied these various things. And so Jesus tells them, you don't know the Bible. You're, first of all, you're wrong. You don't know the Bible, and you don't know the power of God. Right. Because resurrection is a great statement of the power of God. When you can bring life back to a dead body, and for those of us who've been around dead bodies, it's a pretty impressive thing to think about that body coming back into life. Right. And so Jesus hits them on three fronts. And he says, you're, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. There isn't marriage going on in heaven, so your question is totally out of line. It's just an, it's a nonsensical question to ask about marriage in heaven because in heaven, they're like the angels. <laughs> Sadducees don't believe in angels. So he just goes ahead and assumes angels against them because the Bible's so full of record of angels, page after page of angels in the Old Testament. He says the angels are sexless in heaven, and so are we when we get to heaven. We're not male and female marrying and giving in marriage in the same way that we were on earth. And that's an important point to remember, that our marriages are temporal and they're for here. And so there's eternal and spiritual things that are weighty that we've got to keep in priority, even above our marriages, right. even though a Christian marriage is a wonderful thing and a spouse that fears the Lord is a wonderful thing. Amen. For in the resurrection, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but as the angels 
of God in heaven. So he just slides that in on them. I believe there are angels, and I believe that men after they die don't marry or are given in marriage because they're just like the angels. Now, since I've got that out of the way that there are angels, and you still have two errors left, one, that, the, that there isn't a human spirit and that bodies can't be raised. Those two things. So he's going to take care of them both. As touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Haven't you read that? Where is that found? It's found in Exodus chapter 3, and it's God speaking to Moses 300 years after Abraham died, 200 years after Isaac died, 190 years after Jacob died. God said to Moses, I am, not I was. This is a one-word argument. Jesus bases an argument on one word of the Old Testament. I am, to Moses, 300 years after burying uh, Abraham, 200 after Isaac, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am still Abraham's God. I'm still Isaac's God. I'm still Jacob's God. God said that to you. It's in your Bible that you hold so dear. God said it to you. Second point. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham must be alive. Isaac must be alive. Jacob must be alive for the present tense verb to be, which is am, I am, the God of those three men, long after they had died physically and were buried, and God is not the God of the dead. God doesn't have a relationship with someone that's been annihilated, like you said, you sees, believe, happens at death. There must still be a living person, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is still their God because God's the God of the living. So they're alive. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. He just went ahead and presumed angels to show that men are like angels in heaven in that they are spirits and they don't marry. Then he showed that the present tense of God speaking to Moses was that he was still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still had to be alive in their spirit because God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Now, this is the short account. The long account is in Mark. And it says this. He says, as touching the resurrection of the dead, and he quotes these. Now, now, if you've listened to me very carefully, I have not yet proven, and Jesus has not yet proven the resurrection from the dead. He has assumed angels. He's presumed that there is a spirit of man that is still alive after death, and that God is the God and has a relationship with that spirit after death. But there's nothing about resurrection of a dead body. Very quickly, a man is incomplete without his soul and body together. And God took of the dust of the earth and breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He had a body and a spirit. And until you have them put back together, the spirit is incomplete and naked. Now that's Paul in the New Testament, so I can't use it. I was in Genesis chapter 2 about taking the dust of the earth and man man becoming a living soul. Now notice what is assumed by Jesus about the Jews' knowledge of the covenant and the knowledge of the word of God to 
Moses. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a full person has a body. We can prove it from Genesis 2 that when God made a full person named Adam, he had a body and a spirit. We know it. We know it as Christians from the New Testament of Paul saying, we are confident of this thing, that if our earthly tabernacle is dissolved, we have a building of God in the heavens. We're not saying that we want to be naked, meaning our spirit running around without a body, because your spirit running around without a body is naked. It's not whole. And so the, the glorification process is to give us a glorified body that will last forever. That's New Testament. We can't, the Sadducees didn't know about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but they did know about Genesis chapter 2, and they knew this in Exodus chapter 6. I said Deuteronomy 6. It's Exodus chapter 6. They knew this statement that had also been made to Moses. Exodus 6 and verse 4. God is speaking to Moses. And I have also established my covenant with them. I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob in verse 3. By the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. Because he was known as Jehovah, specifically with emphasis to Moses. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. Do you understand that verse? God is speaking to Moses saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're long dead, but I still have a promise to fulfill to them to give them a land to inherit that they were once pilgrims and strangers in. When they, when they used to have to move around the land of Canaan, they were strangers and pilgrims there. The next time they move around the land of Canaan with their bodies, which is assumed in the verse, it's going to be theirs forever because I have a covenant promise to give that to them. It's implied in the words. If you're with me, and I've got to leave this point, if you're with me, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only proves that they have a spirit that separate from the body is still alive and can still be in a relationship with God. It doesn't prove the resurrection of a dead body. But that verse I just gave you, and that, see, we get to cheat because we have a cheat sheet because we're New Testament Christians. Do you know where else we go? Hebrews eleven sixteen, where Abraham knew this promise that he himself was going to get the land of Canaan, but he understood the land of Canaan to be heaven because he said in Hebrews eleven sixteen that by faith he sought for a heavenly country, a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now we know that, so it helps fill in what the Jews also knew, that in the terminology of Exodus 6, 4, it was not about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were to get the land. And you don't use land if you're a spirit. What does a spirit do with a garden? What does a spirit do with a tomato plant? You need a body. And so it's assumed. Jesus used so few words, but they understood. They knew. They knew that the whole man had to have a body. And see, they believed it so much that when the body died, they think they thought he wanted of existence because they put so much emphasis on the body. And Jesus is just saying, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were still alive in Moses' time, and he made a commitment to He didn't say it. It's implied and understood about the covenant made to the patriarchs. You've got to leave that fourth argument. So argument, doctrine number four, the apostles always emphasized bodily resurrection. The apostles always emphasized bodily resurrection. We emphasize this apostolic fact in Baptist baptism. 
Do you know how we defy Sadducee heresy? We're Baptists. When a Baptist practices baptism, it's a burial and a resurrection. It shows the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. That's one resurrection of a body. And it shows our burial and our resurrection when the Lord Jesus returns and resurrects our dead bodies out of the cemetery. And of course, it shows us our burial of our old man for our new man to be raised to walk in newness of life. So only in a Baptist baptism, a Presbyterian baptism doesn't show it. Methodists, Lutherans, Catholics, Anglicans, Episcopalians, they don't show it. It's a Baptist baptism by the burial and the resurrection because the New Testament declares that Baptist baptism declares resurrection. And so by practicing Baptist baptism, we take a stand against Sadducee heresy because they said there was no resurrection. What is one of the great themes of the apostles throughout the New Testament? When the apostles went to a new place and preached, what were they going to get to about every single time? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which made skeptics scorn them because no one could believe in such a thing as resurrecting a dead body, but Jesus had already done it, and he's the first fruits of them that slept. And the apostle Paul was once on trial for his life, and the Jews were standing before him, and he realized that half the crowd were Pharisees and half the crowd were Sadducees. And he said, when he realized that, this is his wisdom. This is, I want to help you so much, but if you believe in principle, your idea of principle, you'll never learn. Paul said these words, I am a Pharisee. I am the son of a Pharisee. And I am on trial today for the resurrection of the dead. Oh, do you know what the Pharisees did when they heard that? They said three amens. I'm a Pharisee. Amen, brother. I'm a son of a Pharisee. Amen, brother. I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Amen. They turned to those, I don't see a thing wrong with him. And there was a riot. There was a riot and Paul started it. I want to help you right now think. Why didn't he stick to principle and said, I'm a Christian? And I think both of you groups are heretics. Why didn't he stick to principle? He used prudence. He used prudence. Was he really a Pharisee? Just that they still had his paperwork on file. But he said, I'm a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, and I'm called in question this day about the resurrection of the dead. That's the real issue. That cost me. We emphasize this apostolic fact in Baptist baptism. That is why I'm slow to baptize. I explain baptism. I explain to the people being baptized, anyone there that's a witness, I want to explain to them the three pictures of burial and resurrection. Do you remember them? The three pictures of burial and resurrection. Jesus for us, us with our old man to rise to walk in newness of life, and Jesus is coming back for our bodies. Right. Next argument. We come down to verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Oh, can't they learn? Then one of them, which was a lawyer called a scribe in Mark and Luke, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? 
Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And and you should know from your reading last night that Matthew has the short account. Because the scribe, who here is called a lawyer, was a discreet man and had a great handle on the truth. And Jesus, hearing him answer discreetly, said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Because this man was not out to destroy the Lord Jesus. This man picked up, wow, he knows how to use the law of Moses. Did you just see what he did to the Sadducees? I want to ask him one of my questions. And listen, this was a question that exposed his whole group because he was a Pharisee. It says he was a Pharisee. It exposed the Pharisees. Here's what we've never appreciated about this little point. The Pharisees loved to relegate the commandments of God into big ones and little ones by their own system. So, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for ye pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and the love of God. You emphasize and stress paying tithes on your herb garden, but you don't love God. Do you see what they did? They reversed the order. And so here's the Pharisees. They've gathered together, and one of them steps forward who has a relatively good heart, And he wants to see if Jesus will take a stand about how the law of Moses should be ordered and prioritized. We don't really, we haven't appreciated this because we know the answer too well to understand the heresy of the Pharisees. Jesus opened up the Sermon on the Mount. If you do not have righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. Because he that teaches men so and does it himself that breaks the least of these commandments is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Are you familiar with those words in Matthew chapter 5? Because they were used to prioritizing things. They would say that a man could look at a woman and lust after her and have all the fantasies that he wanted, but as long as he didn't commit outward adultery, he wasn't guilty of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus corrected all that. They had taken the overt act and put it up, and all the, the, the desires of the heart, they had relegated to nothing. It's a whole system. And those were only a few samples from the New Testament because I've got to get to Jesus answered perfectly. Jesus pulls out of the Old Testament the statements, the Lord our God is one Lord, not found here, but the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord that God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first and great commandment. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two great commandments, and the whole law hangs on those two commandments. And let me share this with you, and I've shared it before. Um, The religion of God can be summarized by two commandments, then by ten, then by the rest. But you can also compress it down to the ten, ten commandments, and then down to the two. The two are love of God and love of neighbor. If you look at the ten commandments, the first four are the love of God, the next six are the love of your neighbor. And Paul knew that, and he taught it in Romans chapter 13. I'm just, Jesus answered it beautifully. So a Pharisee steps forward with a relatively good heart, and he answers very, he loves the Lord's answer. Well, master, here's, well, master, thou hast answered rightly. To love the Lord thy God, that's it. And to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, 
and then to love your neighbor. There are no other commandments like that greater than this. This, these two commandments, these two commandments are greater than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, to, who does that sound like? That sounds like the Lord Jesus Himself. Did he ever have it down right? That was so contrary to the Pharisee doctrine. I want you to get that out of, out of this section of Matthew chapter 22. Doc, doctrine number five, the two greatest commandments are both about love. Ten commandments have four for God and six for others. What is more important, love or public worship? By public worship, I mean all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, love. I guess we can reduce the two commandments to one word. One word, love. Two commandments, love God, love neighbor. Ten commandments. Four, let's see. No other gods, no graven images, don't use my name in vain. I have a day that I have made particularly holy, and that's the seventh day, keep it. Then, those are about, those are about God. Then, honor thy father and thy mother. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. Don't even covet your neighbor's stuff. Six about men. And you can find it in Luke 13 where Paul showed that distinction and that the love of neighbor is summarized by those six commandments. Have I said enough for you to appreciate that this, passage, this section right here is a little deeper than you thought it was? Right. When I read this passage, I go, why would, why, would, why would you ask that question? What's the greatest commandment of the law? Doesn't everybody know that? No, they didn't. The Pharisees don't. And, when, and Jesus' answer was beautiful. And the scribes' response to Jesus' answer was beautiful. Because that is it. The Pharisees had put all... Remember the Pharisees? If you made an oath and you said, except you didn't do that, you took hold of some gold at the temple. I swear that I'm going to do this by the gold of this temple. You were bound by that oath. Jesus went after this. But to say, I swear by the God of this temple, or I swear by this temple which houses the worship of God, you weren't bound by that oath. Can you imagine the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? Because they valued money more by the way they ranked things. And Jesus cuts all of that away, and the scribe loved the answer. When, when you read the words, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. What do you want to do? I want to run through a time tunnel and find him and help him the rest of the distance. Lord, have, he's gone now. He was a Pharisee, but there were some Pharisees that believed. That brings us to verse 41. Matthew 22 and verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Finally, the Pharisees learned the lesson, do not mess with Jesus. The Pharisees had gathered together after Jesus had shamed the Sadducees 
And one scribe had stepped out and asked him, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus answered the great commandment and then the second great commandment and put things in their proper order, so different from the Pharisees, the scribe responded and saw it all clearly. These two commandments are superior to all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Now, the Pharisees were getting a little nervous and they weren't eager to jump on the next one. So Jesus made it easier for them by doing it himself. The Pharisees tried the Caesar trap. The Sadducees tried the resurrection trap. The Pharisees then tried the greatest commandment trap. Now it's Jesus' turn. Let's try the son of David trap. This is Psalm 10 and verse 1. Psalm 10 and verse 1 says, The Lord said unto my Lord. And the Lord is in all caps. L-O-R-D, which means Jehovah God of the, of the Hebrews. Said unto my Lord with L, small L-O-R-D, which is my master and ruler, Adonai, a name for God that wasn't Jehovah. The Lord Jehovah said unto my Lord, Adonai, my master and ruler, David is saying, the Lord, and it says, David said that and wrote that in spirit, meaning he was inspired when he said it. So here's the Lord Jesus Christ reminding them, this is inspired scripture, men. This is not just David's opinion. This is God, the Holy Spirit, through David. This is inspired scripture. Jehovah said to my, to David's master and ruler named Adonai, Sit thou on my right hand. So Jesus asked them, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David. And I love to emphasize Jesus as the son of David because the New Testament emphasizes Jesus as the son of David. But Jesus is more than just the son of David. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ's point. If he's just the son of David, why would David say that his son was his Lord? Men don't call their sons their Lord. That is totally out of character with the whole Bible. Why does, why does David call him Lord in verse 45? This is the second one-word argument of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went back to the Old Testament of 39 books. He found the book of Psalms in his mind by, by the wisdom that he had. He found Psalm 110. He found the first half of verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, and he makes his argument on that second Lord. Why did David call his son? the? See, the Jews all knew that Psalm 110 was about the Messiah. He didn't have to say anything about that. See, here's another, here's another assumption that he made by men that knew their Bibles. Psalm 110 was about the Messiah. So he doesn't say anything about that. He assumes it along with them. Why did David call his son his Lord? if he's just his son? And we know the answer, don't we? Because he was also David's God. He was the Word of God made flesh. How much do you love this Son of God? And the way that he was able to take apart religious enemies. God destroyed the Jews for making light of his son's gospel and mistreating him and his preachers. Are you going to make sure because of Matthew 22 today that you never do that? To make light of his son's gospel and mistreat him or his preachers? That was the first seven verses. The next seven, God blessed the gospel to explode among the Gentiles, but it brought in reprobates to later be cast out. Are you going to make your calling and election sure in this church that you are not a tear? 
and that you are not one of those bad guests that doesn't have a wedding garment on that's going to be exposed in the great day of judgment. You can make your calling and election sure. There's more joy in the process than there is fear. God set up the kings and kingdoms of this world under Christ, and we give them their proper place no matter what their name is, whether it's Caesar or President Trump or President Obama or President Carter or President Clinton or whoever it is, because we understand that they're all under Christ, and he's, he has told us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to him the things that are his, and if the two ever get in conflict, we're always going to be in the sight of God, right. always. But, but we're not pushed to it until they try to force us to do something contrary to the rule of Christ. And if you say to me right now, well, why isn't our whole church assembled? I'm going to, ask, I'm going to answer you this way. Our whole church is never assembled because people are homesick. And right now we are practicing partial assemblies intentionally to preserve public health and to honor authority, no matter how much they, must, they might be misled. Every time you make a choice not to come, you keep us from having a full assembly, and you do it for sickness, and we're doing this for sickness. And so there's 65% of us here, and there's 35% of us not here, and we rotate them through, and we're all going to keep the Lord's table together the first Sunday of every month. And enough on that. Um, God has set up the kingdoms of this world, and we're going to honor them as far as we can. When they push us too far, and I, I'm not going to say what I would do if I was in California, but it would be a little different than here. Because we've been allowed to do this, and we didn't have 21 weeks of being shut down, and there being an ordinance passed against singing. God, doctrine number four, God's raised up the dead and will yet raise the dead, and it's a crucial fact of the past and the future, and we believe it, and we're Baptists. So we show it in Baptist baptism that we are not Sadducees. Number five, God's made his religion as simple as love, supreme love of God, and then love of our neighbors, and we don't get to practice the, the hierarchy of commandments like the Pharisees did. G Jesus was adamant about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus just took them apart, point after point after point. It hath been said by them of old time that thou shalt not commit adultery. And what they meant was the actual act. But I say unto you that you cannot lust after a woman to commit adultery with her in your heart, and you cannot use divorce laws to get a second wife. Unscripturally. See, Jesus just kept doing that. Thou, it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Well, the Pharisees justified themselves. I have not taken a life, like with a knife. I have not taken a life, Jesus said. But I say unto you, that if you're angry with your brother without a justifiable, God-given Bible cause, you're guilty of the sixth commandment, right. thou shalt not kill. Let's not engage in that. I preached a whole series called Forgotten Sins, which dealt with sins that we've kind of relegated into the wastebasket or, or on the corner of the desk because it's terminology not used very much anymore in our country, and it's things that people don't care about, but the Bible cares about them. So we want God's priorities. And God anointed Jesus from the line of David, and he is both God's son, David's son, and David's Lord. He is the God-man. He is the fullness of the Godhead in a body, and yet he's the son of David. And so Jesus answered them, look at the few syllables. It took our Lord to answer, these are the religious leaders bringing their best cases against the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They were in counsel together against him. The truth that we hold, the truth that you've been taught is certain and it is impregnable. You've just got to learn. You've just got to learn it like Jordan exhorted you to learn it this morning. And you've got to run home from work. And instead of playing video games or the other things that he mentioned, I'm going to blame him for all that then you need to run home and learn the Word of God. You need to listen to sermons like this. You need to skim outlines that will be published shortly so that you can stand on the, this certain and impregnable truth. Doctrine number six, Jesus Christ is David's son and God's son. Since he is God's son, he is David's Lord. The GMG starts, what does GMG stand for? Great Mystery of Godliness. The GMG starts, God was manifest in the flesh. Modern Bible versions, he was manifest in the flesh. We don't know who they're talking about. Who was manifest in the flesh? We don't know who they were talking about. They use he, they use who. The King James Bible uses God was manifest in the flesh. Because Jesus was God and Jesus was man. He was David's son. He was David's Lord. He was David's creator. He was David's savior. Each of those either take his divine nature or his human nature and Jesus answered all things well. This is your Savior. This is the head of our church. This is the head of our religion. He's the one we follow. You just got to see him in action. Are we going to be free from any of those heresies he had to take apart? Let's never make light of the gospel. Let's remember that there's a day of judgment coming to make our calling and election sure. Let's love the resurrection and why we are Baptists. Let's remember that the great commandment is love of God and love of neighbor. And let's remember that Jesus is oh so much more than just the man of Nazareth. He is God in the flesh. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Stand with me, please.